Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for having us. Um, tonight, it is all about how we are going to turn the Rust Belt into the Green Belt and the many routes to that happening. I would like to take this moment right now, though, to let the panelists try, kind of introduce themselves and let you know what they have been working on and why they're here tonight. Cody, would you like to take us away? Cool. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Cody Clark. I use he, him pronouns. I'm 16 years old, and I am an organizer for the Youngstown Hub of the Sunrise Movement, which works to engage young people in the conversation about climate solutions in our politics, and I'm very excited to be here. Hello, I'm Deborah Flora. I'm the executive director of Mahoning County Land Bank. Among other things, we've been administering a $14.8 million reimbursement award to do necessary demolitions throughout Mahoning County, especially in Youngstown. There's been a greening component to that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Dyer. I'm the Environmental Program Manager with Eastgate Regional Council of Governments. And part of our program deals with um, surface water protection and water quality within Mahoning and Trumbull counties, as well as administering the Clean Ohio Fund for conservation and stream and wetland restoration. Hi, I'm Lisa Ramsey. I'm Deputy Director of the Trumbull Neighborhood Partnership. We're a community development corporation that serves the city of Warren and Trumbull County. Um, we do everything from housing to vacant land reuse projects, um, a lot of youth organizing. We have quite a different slate of things on our plate, so we're, I'm excited to be here tonight. All right. All right, thank you everyone for those introductions. So tonight we are going to be talking about some of these burning questions. Um, as of lately, uh, Youngstown and the Mahoning Valley has kind of been at the center of a lot of the talks of economic development within the region, even at the national level. So we want to talk a little bit tonight about some of those factors and how that influences what's going to happen here and around the country. All right, so our first question I'm going to start us off with is how do you see the Mahoning Valley as a region shaping America's embrace of the values of this new green revolution that we are seeing throughout the country? Um, who would like to take this first? Hmm? <laughs> I can go. So the Mahoning Valley, we know how to be leaders. In the 1900s, we housed five of the nation's major steel mills. We know how to be leaders. We just need to reinvest our money into green policy and green solutions because we have the potential to be urban leaders and to be on the front lines of making these solutions for countries that have been majorly in the oil and gas industries. But we have the ability to, to transition and we have that technology. We just need to know where to invest our money and we need to start. Does anyone have anything to add to that? Well, um, you, you know, in so many ways you try to define problems and convert them into opportunities, right? And so the opportunity before us locally does have to do with land. Um, for the amount of land we have versus the current population, we actually have a lot of opportunity to try some new things. Um, I like to think of what we do at the land bank as part of a living laboratory, that all of the vacant land that is available allows us to try some things that are different than the norm here, um, but probably also somewhat reflective of what's happening elsewhere as far as being cleaner and greener and not being a single purpose project, but having multiple benefits to the projects that we undertake. Um, so. I, I see a lot of opportunity here. Opportunity uh, needs enthusiasm, it needs capital as well, but first things first, you have to have the will to do it. And Deb, could you explain a little bit about some of the green infrastructure projects you have going on in the Mahoning Valley? Sure, so on this uh, topic of regenerative uh, revitalization, it's not something that the land bank got into intentionally, but certainly the parallels are there simply because we have had to do something beyond the demolitions that we've been performing now for four years. Our funder expected us 
to do something with the land after demolition. And as we realized how many properties that was going to mean, currently it's more than a thousand demolitions that we've done in the last four years, we began to realize how much neighborhoods were going to change as a result of our activities. So the greening mandate from our funder became more and more important to us as our projects went along. It started with substituting clover instead of grass because we cannot cut grass and, and expect to be a cleaner, greener community. Um, we have about 2,500 properties in our inventory today. And we actively maintain about a third of those because they're in areas that are still rather densely populated. We'll spend $300,000 this year on cutting grass and trimming down weeds and such like that. I think that money could be put to better use if we get creative and figure out how to amass some of these now vacant properties into more meaningful spaces so that we can do that multiple benefit style of project. So we started with planting clover in some places. We've always insisted on perennials or native species plants here. Um, and so now it's led to what Keelan Logan and the colony are doing on the south side, where we have amassed small numbers of properties and we're creating, uh, it's a green infrastructure project that'll have multiple benefits in that. We do have localized flooding in that neighborhood. So we're trying to address that through Keelan's work. But we're also trying to beautify a neighborhood that, again, is changing very, very drastically with the number of demolitions that have been performed in that area. So we're trying to bring something that is more aesthetically pleasing to the people who are, are rooted there. We're trying to address, you know, we all understand that we have water issues here in terms of stormwater management and uh, some cross-contamination things happening. And I'm not here to say that we're going to solve every single one of those in what we're doing, but I do think that it's a step forward. We haven't really had um, a lot of green infrastructure examples here, but you will have one by the end of summer. Great. Um, Lisa, what are you doing at, in Trumbull? Is there other projects going on in the area such as this? Well, we have similar, because we also manage the Trumbull County Land Bank, so we have the same demolition grant with the same greening requirements that Mahoning County has as well. Um, but one thing that I think, I guess kind of to answer that question, but just an amazing opportunity that we have um, in Warren and in Youngstown is the ability to reach a very local government. So the mayor is literally a phone call away. Um, the decision makers are involved on in a regular basis, which means we're able to try these projects much more easily than you would be able to at a larger city level. So we're also looking at the, so this opportunity of having everybody we need actually at the table, including the decision makers, having the land. We also have a massive amount of land that we've uh, acquired. And then having resources through our primary funder that is encouraging these type of greening projects. So we've done a lot of small-scale greening projects um, on residential lots in particular. We are looking at as simple as when the property comes down and the neighbor is going to acquire it, maybe if it's wet, we put the right type of tree on it to help with the water retention in that area. So we, we do do a lot of very small uh, localized neighborhood projects in that same manner. But it is just such an, an amazing opportunity to make those, um, like that microcosm of just real uh, localized choices together so we can experiment with different things. A lot of what Cody was saying in the beginning really hits home because there is this amazing opportunity that we have. We are leaders in this community and we have the ability and the power within our grasp to try out new things. It also means we can't be afraid to fail. Um, that's gonna happen, but only really by trying are we going to hit on the next thing that we need to, to really do that will be successful. Great. Okay, now Stephanie, my next question is kind of directed towards you. With After hearing from the land banks and what they're dealing with and trying to mitigate some of the storm water that is a problem throughout the area, how does the watershed come into that and kind of the dam project that you have going on? Okay, so that's a good question. 
So when we're looking at the land, we know that anytime rain falls, it's either going to absorb into the land or it's going to run off. So we've built our communities around one large watershed, which is the Mahoning River. So for decades, that river was used for industrial purposes where we've dammed them up, created false river pools for those pools to be used for an industry that pretty much raised the cities of Youngstown and Warren and put us up on the map. So at Eastgate, what we're working on doing is revitalizing not just our area, but revitalizing the Mahoning River, the river that once built us. It's time for us to bring it back to life. So what we're working on is addressing not only just the low head dams that are in the river and restoring it back where we can, but also addressing the storm water that drains into not just the Mahoning River, but also our surface drinking water. So in our watersheds, we have about five or six surface waters that we know we rely on. Whether you get your water from Mosquito Creek, from Yander Reservoir, from Lake Hamilton, or even the Mahoning River or the Grand River up in northern Trumbull County, we all rely at some point on surface water, unless you're on well water. But surface water is so important because what we do on our lands affects the water quality. It affects the chemicals that are put into it. It affects the habitat. It affects the aquatic life. And those are the resources that not only the governmental entities are working on, but also we also need to work on personal responsibility for what we do on our own properties that ends up draining into the storm drains that goes into the storm water. So when we're looking at the, the watersheds and the land, we're looking at the green infrastructure, that infrastructure that we can help incorporate within our urbanized communities that when you do have stormwater runoff, you use nature to do what it does best. It absorbs and treats any of our runoff from not only our properties, but also our impervious surfaces, our parking lots, our roadways. So those are things to keep in mind when we're dealing with stormwater. So the more impervious services we have, the more runoff we're going to have. The more quantity of water we have entering our storm drains, the more water coming from those storm drains into our natural stream channels, causing erosion, causing a stream to get bigger and bigger and bigger and encroach upon our either personal property, property or our commercial properties. So working with the land banks and promoting green infrastructure is one way to help not only the quality of stormwater, but also the quantity. Yes. And that kind of is really nice draw into our next question. How can green projects help with public health and environmental justice for local citizens? Because as we know with like the stormwater issue, if there is a lot of flooding in basements and stuff, this causes mold, which is a health hazard to local residents. Also flooding itself could be very harmful to residents in an area, um, along with um, air quality and things like that. So what's some of the viewpoints that you have on this topic? Someone want to take that? Anyone? Cody? Sure. All right. Uh, so I think that a lot of this very extreme weather patterns and extreme flooding events that have been happening, one that you might have gotten caught in a few hours ago, these have become very normal to us, which is extraordinarily scary because these are not normal. This is a direct result of climate change. And once we start implementing these solutions with stormwater drains and rain barrels, that's the moment when we can start bringing solutions to the table because this stuff affects all of us and the most efficient way that it will be solved and that it will be helped and solved is when all of us bring what we have to the table and all of us work together towards this solution. And also I think it's very engaging for young people because I remember one of my first field trips, we went to Cuyahoga Valley National Park and we learned about rain barrels and we learned about stormwater drains and how those solutions could be a part of our lives and how we could implement them. And 
the way that we keep this track going is we continue to engage young people. And I think that stormwater drains and green infrastructure in particular are really simple, but so very effective in doing that. Yes, I totally agree. Stephanie? One thing to remember about stormwater is in water in general doesn't pay any attention to political boundaries. So when we deal with stormwater and we deal with water, we look at it from a watershed standpoint. And a watershed is an area of land that's based on topography. So those are the hills and valleys within the area. So you may be in a township or in a community that drains into two different or even three different watersheds, but what happens when we're dealing with stormwater and trying to address solutions those upstream and even downstream were always affecting somebody else. So when we take a watershed, for example, like Mill Creek, we're looking at communities such as Columbiana, Beaver Township, Boardman Township, the city of Youngstown. We're all affecting one another. So we have to work within our watershed in our communities to deal with stormwater. So it's not just one community versus another community if we just start looking at a watershed perspective. But where green infrastructure is um, concerned, uh, going to conferences for stormwater, the biggest thing I have heard from folks is the fact of our soils. Our soils are terrible. We can't implement green infrastructure. Maintenance. Who's going to perform the maintenance? So. Yes, as long as we have rain gardens or we have those permeable surfaces, we do need to have people maintain them. And that's where folks like Keelan's group and his workforce come into play, where we're training trainers to go out and teach community members how to properly weed a rain garden. So you're looking for those invasive species that come in and overcrowd the native vegetation that we've placed inside these rain gardens. So there's a, a, a good correlation between putting these into play and having the maintenance and the workers, the workforce, to maintain those structures properly. And I think that's a nice segue into our next question, actually, is how are new sources of livelihood emerging and changing the social norms with new technologies, bringing new opportunities for our use and worker forced, you know, overall? So maybe in the future, do you think we will see more um, students going into green infrastructure, maybe solar farming, things like that? Um, Deb, would you like to comment on this? I would hope that what we're doing has um, started to pique some interest anyway. I mean, think about it. I, I said a few moments ago, we've done more than 1,000 demolitions in neighborhoods in four years. That means not only removing the house, but removing the foundation also. It means removing any dead trees, and unfortunately, any living trees that may have been a barrier to completing the demolition. We have scraped a lot of parcels clean in the process, and that's actually kind of frightening because then, you know, here we are back to Stephanie's concern about stormwater just runoff, right? We probably have created some situations that we didn't intend to do. The antidote then has been some of the greening projects that we have done. Um, there's another portion of the south side where we knew we were taking down a six-unit residential building and it was over two pieces of property, and I knew we wanted to do something there. It was at a corner, it was a significant location. We work a lot with Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation and learned from the staff there that for the kids that lived in that area, they had a 30-minute walk to an open city park. So we ended up doing something that was both about stormwater management and about bringing a feature to that neighborhood, especially for the kids that didn't have easy access to simply play, right? Um, I think that we're not the only community that is struggling with this kind of transition right now from being so densely populated to less populated, but we still wanna feel connections to our properties and to our neighbors and everything, and so how are we going to do that? I think we're gonna do it the green way, and so, there, I think, is the portal then for people to look for some career opportunities and training opportunities, because we're going to need to do this a lot in the coming decade, if not longer. Yes. And Alisa, 
one way in? Yeah, we actually, um, in the last two years, created a program called Building a Better Warren. Uh, we saw in our communities an ample amount of small-scale work that needed to be taken care of. So demolitions clearly need to be taken care of by an expert. You would want to see me running an excavator over a lot. So we outsource all of the, that type of technical work to licensed contractors. But there was an immense amount of work that also needed to happen before demolition and immediately after demolition. And then we also had that whole other issue of all these houses that didn't really need to be torn down, but still needed some renovation work. So we created a program called Building a Better Warren, which began to pair low-income community members with that work that was needed in the community. And we currently now have, uh, I think we're on six people that we have employed full time. Um, they Same benefits as everybody else on staff. They're a labor crew, but they have the 401k plan. They have health care, the whole nine yards, um, and financial literacy training as well to kind of lift those underemployed or unemployed individuals that live within the community up and connect them to work that needed to be done at the exact same time. So on a very, very small scale, we've used opportunities as a result of our demolition crisis and our housing crisis to put people to work. And so right now they do everything from salvaging materials pre-demolition for resale, which reduces the impact of the amount of uh, waste going to the landfills. Uh, they also do mowing, they do greening installations like split row fence and trees and gardens after the demolition comes down. Um, and they're also working on learning renovation skills because that's the sustainable part of our program afterwards. So we have a demolition grant for the next two years and once that's out, we'll phase them into doing renovation work. So what we're looking at is a very small scale opportunity to connect people to work that's already needed. And though that's not something that's going to change the unemployment rates in a significant manner in the Mahoning Valley, it is something that is one small replicable piece that could be done in other communities as well. So in addition to kind of creating that, that workforce development program, the other thing that we strive really hard to do is to connect our residents uh, directly to their, the land in their neighborhoods. Now that we've lost so much density, we have to view land as an opportunity for neighbors to now expand their side yards so they own even more land than they did before, which is good for the equity in their, in their property. Um, but we also use that land to help people learn about eating fresh fruits and vegetables that were grown locally, which reduces the impact from you know, truck transportation. Um, we can control what's being put on these plants. So we try really hard to view the lack of density, the loss of density as an opportunity to create jobs, as an opportunity to change our health indicators very slowly, but on a replicable level that can be done in other cities like ours. Okay, great. Now, Cody, I would want to hear from a youth perspective and kind of talk about some of the activism that you've been doing with the Green New Deal, which deals directly with workforce development, especially in the region and countrywide. Of course. So I think policies such as the Green New Deal are very important right now because green jobs already outweigh fossil fuel jobs three to one. And we have the ability to be bringing people into this, into this solution-based economy through solar farming, through wind farming. And this is the first, one of the first election cycles where these policies are being brought to the table. And I do think one of the places where the Green New Deal lacks is in the training of people who did work in fossil fuel industries, because fossil fuel industries employed a lot of people, but a green and clean future is the future that we need. So we need to be bringing fossil fuel workers into these solutions, and we need to be training them as well as young people and people who are going into this area of expertise to be working with this and to be part of the transition of a Green New Deal. And there's a lot of misinformation and miseducation about the Green New Deal and what our group basically has been doing recently is we've been trying to say what the Green New Deal actually is and what its purpose is. 
because it's not a bill, it's a resolution. And the purpose of a resolution is to lay a framework for the solutions that we need to implement. And a lot of people have been saying that it is not detailed enough, it is not supposed to be detailed, it is supposed to be read by the average person and understood by you and I, so that we can understand what solutions our government is trying to implement. And once we read it, and once we start understanding the actual purpose of it, there's the next step is to start implementing it. Yes, great. Okay, so um, I think coming off of that to the whole panel again, um, maybe a more localized approach to economic development is at hand when we are looking at these regeneration of a city such as Youngstown and the whole Mahoning Valley. Um, Stephanie, what do you think? Do you think it's going to go from local level up? Is that kind of your perspective? Or how do you think this is going to happen? From a perspective of rebuilding or rebranding, if you want to call it, the Mahoning Valley, um, speaking on revitalizing the river itself, we have seen great, tremendous collaboration between not only the local communities, the mayors, the township trustees, but also from the state representative level and on further into... Um, working with the Ohio EPA and how they've become more focused on revitalizing our Mahoning River. So we've seen examples from Northeast Ohio where they've taken the Cuyahoga River, they've removed dams along it within that river and cities such as Kent, Monroe Falls, Cuyahoga Falls have all rebuilt themselves and regenerated themselves into almost a recreational um, potpourri up there where we've now seen large groups of folks going and kayaking. We have great rapids up there that you probably wouldn't have seen if you've had, if you've had those dams in there. So if you can picture what their revitalization has been like in Kent, downtown Kent, and the types of um, shops and buildings and just community gatherings that they've had. You can sort of see that down here in our lower Northeast Ohio, but just on a smaller scale with Youngstown and the city of Warren. You know, the city of Warren's already started with their amphitheater. We have one starting down here in Youngstown. Although we can't reach the river, we still have that visual perception of being down in a river, being next to it. Um, so I can see that once we start removing dams and opening up the river and allowing it to create its own new floodplain and reconnect ourselves with it, I think there's going to be a larger draw for recreation. And I think once people start to see the economics behind recreation, you know, folks buying the kayaks, folks buying fishing supplies, rods, reels, what have you, we're going to start to see the communities along the river rebuild themselves and kind of bring more um, sustainable practices along the river. So where we're concerned as well is not only just removing the dams, but improving water quality so that people feel more confident when they're coming to the Mahoning River and not having that... Um, historical stereotype that you can't touch the river, you can't go in the water because you're going to come out with an extra arm or a leg or a toe. I mean, when you are in that river, it is like you are not in an urban setting. So I encourage everybody, if you ever get a chance to take a kayak trip along the Mahoning River and just sit in your kayak, look around and envision what that river was before and what it could be when you're there. So take those visions and give them to your community leaders and help them form what you want that Mahoning River Valley, that community to, to look like and build upon that. Um, do you see there being a new future factory-wise and manufacturing-wise whenever it comes to the valley? And how do you see that really taking shape? Do you think we can kind of do a reboot of our manufacturing or do you think that's kind of past? I think we have established um, manufacturing 
parks, for lack of better terms. So when we're looking at the Mahoning River, there are set areas that we've already have established um, industrial areas. So whether it's that the Caslo area down in um, the city of Struthers that spans Struthers and Camel, but also includes Lowville. Um, you do have those areas where the brownfields have been reinvested in, where they have been cleaned up, so the properties are made um, usable again by some industry that wants to come in, either rebuild itself along our Mahoning River or, you know, occupy one of the other buildings within the Mahoning River. So we do have plenty of industrial land along the river that has, you know, that historical steel mill passed, but a lot of the properties, the communities have taken it upon themselves to go ahead and clean up using uh, Clean Ohio revitalization funds um, from back in the day when that was still available. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think now we're going to open up to questions from the audience. So are you guys ready for that? As I, okay. As I said earlier, this seems like it has the potential to be a terrific international effort. Have you been working with people in other countries to be, see what they've been doing in similar situations? Any of you? We get calls from uh, academics in Japan uh, kind of regularly, like a couple times a year. Now, they haven't really asked us about greening yet, but they're very interested in how Youngstown is embracing the smaller, mightier city concept. So they have talked to us about demolition um, and how we, we handle land assembly toward other economic development and things like that. But here's maybe why they haven't talked to us about green yet. Because we really haven't worked green into our everyday business until lately, right? I think that Stephanie Odot, when there's a, a major highway project, there's usually a small amount of money set aside for some sort of greening afterwards, something to, to beautify the highway, right? And that's probably the most that we had seen around here in a long time. Um, you can, if you've been around for a few years as I have, you know that Youngstown and Warren and Camel and Struthers and other cities, if they even had the money to demolish bad housing, that's what they did, was take down the house, right? They didn't do anything to the property afterward. They didn't take out the foundation either. They couldn't afford, they had to economize. There was just so much that needed to be done in order to stretch those dollars. They just took out down the house and they left the property as is. But with the demolition reimbursement award that Trumbull and Mahoning counties are spending, it's required of us to do something after demolition. That was a sea change, at least in our world. We'd already had other demolition funding come our way where it was business as usual. Take the house down, and we don't really care what happens afterward. That's, that's up to you to figure out, right? That's why it was important to us in administering this award that we had some higher profile greening projects so that we would have something to talk about with the academics from Japan, but certainly in our area and say, all right, does this work or doesn't this work? And at least there's a platform to advance more. I don't think, may, I don't know how you feel, Lisa, but I don't think that future funding, if it's going to come our way for demolition, we'll be able to walk away from the concept of what do you do afterward? Because we're just going to exacerbate bad situations that already exist, more runoff, more a different form of blight. We'll just replace one form of blight with another unless we do it the green way. And I think especially young people around the world have been part of the group bringing solutions to their local governments. Um, Greta Thunberg, for example, she started striking from school on Fridays to protest climate change, and she lives in Sweden. Um, Isra Hirsi, there's uh, Alexandria Valsignor, there's people all over the world who are bringing these solutions to their local governments and national governments because it's not just America who needs green policy, it's not just America who needs a Green New Deal, it's Mozambique who releases the least amount of carbon emissions yet just got hit with two major cyclones. It's countries that are on the front lines of climate change for no fault of their own. That's why 
it's not just us, it's the US, it's Canada, it's China, it's Japan, it's Australia. Everywhere around the world needs green policies and we need them quick. I know it's on the stormwater end when we have the rain events that we've had. It's unfortunate that the time stormwater makes the headlines is when it makes a personal impact on our property. A lot of times when we put the infrastructure in, it's like anything else with a river, out of sight, out of mind. We know the water goes down in the drain, but does anyone ever think where that water leads to? Probably not. So most of the time it leads to a stream that eventually will go into somebody's drinking water source. But what it will take with this green infrastructure rise is a change in zoning codes, a change in ordinances, and folks to make sure that if those changes are made, that they're reinforced. We can work with development side by side and make compromises with you know, development as long as we're doing some green infrastructure put into it. There's multiple numerous research projects out there with green infrastructure, redeveloping brownfields using green infrastructure. So there are methods out there in dealing with stormwater through green infrastructure. We just need to talk to our, cons to our governing agencies and making sure that they're put into the books. So it is definitely a very global economy that we live in now, and everyone is affected by that. I also know that there is some development with electric car companies from China wanting to invest in the valley. So that's something that's up and coming, and sure, we're going to see more of in the future. Uh, Keelan, do you have a question for us? I do. What do you guys see as the one of... so? when implementing and integrating green into sustainable solutions in the valley, what can the average person do? The everyday mom, dad, son, daughter, parent, whatever, what can they do to help sustain this and help to move it forward? All right, great question. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> Lisa? It's a really good question. Uh, it really depends on that particular person's interest, uh, because there are multiple entry points into this type of work. Um, if we have a group of residents who felt passionate enough about this to invest their time in it, there are numerous resources that will actually support those type of resident-led campaigns. Um, so on the, that's on the more organized end. But for the average person who just has the nine to five, wants to take care of their land and property, I think a lot of it is education, understanding what you are dumping in your driveway when you wash your car, understanding why you might not want to plant you know, X, Y, and Z in your yard, and learning that that's an invasive species, and learning what an invasive species is, um, why it's better to grow food on your own land or to buy it locally than it is to you know, have it ordered in uh, from outside of the state. There's a lot of little education points like that, and there's already a tremendous amount of resources through soil and water conservation districts, through the extension offices that will teach people just very basic stuff about how our, you know, our natural environment works. I don't know if you guys ever had the fun pleasure of seeing the model that like soil and water does where you dump the thing at the top and then you watch it go all the way down. But there's a lot of adults that will stand around the table while their kids are and they're like, whoa. You know, it's just really basic education that we, most of us as adults probably just forgot. Um, and learning some of those things. And then you can come very small steps and become an advocate for not dumping, you know, the grease out the back door and who cares what happens to it after that. I definitely agree that knowledge is power. Like we were talking about earlier, sometimes the most common things like trees. Um, one pin oak tree can hold up to 80 gallons of stormwater in one rain event. So that's something that we need to educate ourselves on, especially when we're maintaining our own property and making decisions for our local community. Cody, do you have something to add before next question? No? no? All right. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, so for nuclear energy, how does 
it fit in with the whole, the future of really energy and climate change in the economy, in this area possibly? So are we talking like renewables? Yeah, renewable energy with nuclear power. Is that a possibility? And if so, how could it be carried out? Does anyone want to take that one? All right, it's kind of more my wheelhouse, I guess, which I can kind of take. Uh, yeah, I definitely believe that there is a economy here in the valley for things like renewable energies. There are so many different kinds of renewables out there. We have not even started to utilize half of what we have technology-wise. Um, solar farming is definitely a possibility here in Ohio. Germany is ran on almost 100% renewable and they do not get as much sun as we do. So it is definitely in the cards for Ohio to do that. I believe in the future that we might see on some of these vacant properties um, solar panels going up. Um, there's things like community solar, where initially up front the cost is more for the neighborhood, but in the long term you'll actually see cost of electricity go down because of these installations being in your neighborhood. So definitely things like that. There's also things like geothermal, which is wonderful and would be great in this area with the geology that we have. We would be able to heat our homes using rocks underground to actually heat water and pump up into our houses. So there's definitely renewables that could be brought in alongside things like natural gas and stuff like that. And I see that kind of being integrated in to what we're doing and maybe even at some point us going more for renewables in the future. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? Anyone? We definitely have um, wind turbines in some of our areas at YSU. I know that um, a couple times a week I'm seeing the wind turbines moving, so they do have that pilot project. Um, but, yeah. All right, next question. Um, so, what kind of opportunity do you guys believe that the vacant space of GM can provide for green infrastructure and whatnot? If any opportunity at all, because I don't know like the zoning about that. I know it was, serves a conflict with like TJ Maxx and whatnot, so yeah. There's always opportunity um, for any space. And I think that with a reinvestment in green technologies, the plant in Lordstown could be a really great place to start investing in solutions for all energy bus fleets and cars and hybrids. And we can use it for similar things like it's been used in the past, but we can instead invest, reinvest into green solutions and green structures for our transportation instead of fossil fuels. I definitely agree, and um, right now, um, the people that are looking to buy the plant, even though it's not a done deal yet, are looking at doing electric trucks and helicopters. So very interesting stuff. Do you guys have anything to add to this? No? Six million square feet, right? <laughs> that's, yes, that's opportunity galore. <laughs> All right, is there any more questions from the audience for us? Hi, I guess this question is directed uh, mostly to Lisa because of Trumbull County. And I'm just curious how you see uh, in what way can people uh, act against projects like the expansion of the uh, Holland Medical Complex that's being proposed, which will fill in Class Three wetlands and create uh, a havoc in, on Eastland Avenue where the the current Mercy Health uh, campus sits? That is a challenging question. <laughs> um, so in projects that are more controversial like that one, there's, I think one of the most important things to do is, is to gather enough voices together that are willing to go on record and speak. Um, and that can be tricky because we have a tendency in the valley to be very desperate. I'll just call it what it is, very desperate for the next thing that's gonna come and bail us out of this mess. And 
I think one thing that's super important uh, throughout this whole discussion, through that concept, is us understanding as a community what we have available as an asset. And we have a lot of land, we have a lot of water, and we have a lot of natural environment that's still very strong. And yes, parts of it do need to be cleaned up. We have to get rid of these dams. But we have land that's available that needs cleaned up already that was developed and educating people why that's the, the best choice for the long term versus filling in wetlands and going farther outside of the town to farther stretch the density is a problem as well. There's a lot of issues here in social justice because when you take those type of facilities outside of the urban center and you already lack transportation, not only are you muddying up m more good land, you're taking the resources farther away from people who have a more difficult time getting to it. So you can angle an organizing um, initiative against something like that from so many different points beyond just the environmental um, effects that it does have, because there is that social justice issue, there is a transportation issue, there's a whole slate of problems, really. And so the most important thing, in my opinion, is, is gathering enough voices together that are willing to stand up and say, no, we value what we have, and we appreciate that you're wanting to invest in our community, but we need you to consider these options as well. Um, so that is a, a trickier question, but I, I think that's kind of the most important piece is just gathering enough voices together. Yeah, and I think you really brought us to the, kind of the topic of the talk tonight. Sustainability is finding those connections and dealing with those really wicked problems that are hard to deal with because there is so many elements to them. It's not a straightforward answer by any means. So a lot of these things that we are dealing with at the local and city and even statewide level are kind of tricky because there are so many stakeholders involved and so much at stake. So is there someone else with a question? All right. Hi, uh, great panel. So I'm a, a green entrepreneur, so I'm biased because I think you can um, be green because it's the right thing to do, but ideally if it is revenue producing, job producing, economy growing, then you should head in that direction. Do you see, um, and I'm coming up from, down from Cleveland, so are there any examples locally you think of entrepreneurs who are developing green solutions that are inspiring to people, that are people, are people rallying around, or what kinds of um, enterprises like that do you see emerging here? Great question. Who wants to take that one? I'm going back to Keeland. <laughs> no, you know, we met a couple of years ago, and, you know, he was talking to me then about creating jobs around green infrastructure, and I was still trying to figure out where we were going with our greening component anyway. And then finally, you know, our minds finally met, probably he was ahead of me, but our minds finally met last summer, and I said, now I get it. You need a place to demonstrate what you're talking about in the city. So it was great to have the opportunity that we had to marry our resources to his will. So I hope that that will be an example. I, I don't know if you count as an entrepreneur yet, uh, Keelan, because I have a feeling that you're putting in way more time than you're going to get back in the way of money. But um, yeah, I, I would say that that's, that's the example that we would want people to see soon. So it's the first three blocks of East Avondale off of Market Street. The transition's already happening there. I think we have 15, 14, 15 properties in play. About half of them were standalone solo properties, and so they've already received some treatment. But now we have a cluster of two properties in the 100 block and a cluster of five properties in the 200 block um, that'll be the focus of this project. Uh, see, he's getting his sketches out. He's prepared. <laughs> um, but the, the 200 block especially, because he's going to use pervious concrete to create a walkway, you're actually going to be able to cut through this from uh, East Avondale over to East Boston. And there is a concept that's probably going to emerge over time there, but it's of using some of that property to create a food forest, 
right? Which is really green and, again, answers a lot of questions that we have here about, you know, how are we going to get healthy food into our neighborhoods when we can't attract enough grocery stores and people have to, you know, ride WRTA across town or to the suburbs to bring home a couple bags of groceries. So, yeah, this, this is going to play out over time, but you're going to see a change yet this year as far as the way the neighborhood looks, the way those lots are functioning, and hopefully the way people feel about where they are in that neighborhood. Um, and I, I do hope the best for Keelan and the colony and, and how this plays out because I think there's great potential there for young people and future employment and uh, education opportunities. And just to add on to what Deb said, we actually worked with a class at East High School um, with students to pick out some trees and things for the native food forest that they were talking about. So they were actually part of the research going into that project. Um, also at the school district, we have a young man working with our hydro and aquaponics over here in the Schaffen Greenhouse. So we're hoping to get a program up and going to teach um, adults and also high school students how to farm fish and plants using only water that is recycled in a closed system. So that's really interesting and I'm really hoping that works out. Um, Stephanie, did you have anything to add? Or? I was going to say, um, over the recent years, we've had so many entrepreneurs start up either new businesses that have been focused on fair trade or those that have been focused on farm to table. And I know those partnerships um, not only grow with the local farms so that they know how their beef is raised, how their poultry is raised, or how even just in general the vegetables are and what they use to help grow healthy crops, but there's also a good partnership between them and the Farm Bureau agencies within our counties. So I've seen that blossom through the work that we've done at Eastgate with just watershed work. Great. All right. Anyone else want to add to this? I'll just add that we've had some strong relationship with Kent State University and also um, Youngstown State University, working with several departments in both schools to give real-world training and access to real-world situations to students for designing, uh, particularly around landscape design, on more sustainable designs and things like that. So we've been working kind of on the pipeline of people that might be able to come in and do that type of work in our community. And that's, we've actually been able to actually execute several of their ideas. Um, so they've seen them all the way through to implementation. And that's been really helpful for both us and them. All right. Um, I just want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Thank you to our panelists. That was a great panel, very informative. And I think I'm supposed to ring the gong. I'm going to try to do it better this time. Oh, did not work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>